0: about to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philocleaministries.org. Please note that Philokalia Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philokalia Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you, and enjoy the podcast.
1: to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Welcome everybody uh, to Saints Peter and Paul Church. My name is Father David Abernethy. I'm the administrator here and uh, this evening or this weekend developed as a retreat for Tyler who's sitting at the staple here. He's going to be ordained here at the beginning of June to the diaconate and uh, I was asked to give him a retreat but I thought we want to make it as nice for him as, as possible. Just sitting on in a, in a couch across from me would be pretty boring for the weekend. Uh, but it's always, if you've come to any of my groups or listened online, you know my mode of operation. It's never to give a lecture, especially when we're looking at a text and a text that's very rich. One of the writings of the fathers or something like Olivier Clement and uh, his writings so beautiful that uh, I sort of want to do a a group Lexio Divina. So a prayerful, slow reading of just the middle part of this text, which is on the prayer to the Holy Spirit, O Heavenly King. He's a magnificent writer. He lived in the the 20th century, was a Russian Orthodox uh, theologian, but also good friends with St. John Paul II. And they were both very uh, focused on ecumenical, uh, affairs within the life of the church and among Christians. And so, so they work closely together uh, throughout their lives and uh, I've came across Clement about a year or two ago and started reading a number of his works. There's another one I believe called Tears of the Sun uh, that is on the uh, Andrew of Crete's uh, What's the title again? Song of tears. No, the uh, what's done during the Great Canon, The Great Cannon, right. It's on, on the Great Canon and it's a beautiful book. So I would highly recommend it as well as anything that Clement has written. Uh, he's not trying to uh, regurgitate what the fathers uh, say about these particular prayers. Uh, it's surprisingly uh, original in that regard. Uh, I don't think you'll find too many footnotes within it. Uh, but it's as rich as the writings of the Fathers. And so that's why I chose to do this. And the fact that we're coming up on Pentecost Sunday and Tyler's ordination, that it seems uh, good for us to focus upon the Holy Spirit. And uh, I think Holy Spirit is one of the neglected persons of the Holy Trinity as it is. And so I I don't think we could possibly give too much time in our reflection to the Holy Spirit and its action uh, within our life and uh, Right from the get-go, Clement makes it clear that this prayer should be something that is a part of our daily life, but actually that precedes everything that we do throughout the course of our day. That this reality of our relationship with the Holy Spirit and the strength that we receive through the Holy Spirit should be something that's first and foremost in our minds. And so seeking the guidance, the strength of God, and all that we do, say, think, throughout the course of the day, uh, we would be appealing uh, to the action of the Holy Spirit within our lives. Okay, so we're just going for this uh, mini retreat to focus on the center section of the book. Uh, I've read the others, uh, the other is on the Our Father and, uh, and then Saint Ephraim's prayer that's typically said during Lent. So key prayers especially for Eastern Christians uh, but certainly the Our Father for all Christians uh, and they're beautifully written, but I didn't think that we would be able to do them justice if we tried to go through the whole text in three conferences. Okay. So uh, we'll just limit it uh, to the one on the Holy Spirit, O oh, Heavenly King. So we're on page 51, if you're following along in the text. And uh, just so you all know that we're also recording this uh, for a podcast and for those who couldn't make the retreat, so be careful what you say. Uh, but also don't be careful. Don't be shy. Uh, one of the beautiful things I have found out about these groups and why I've gravitated towards them is that they've enriched my understanding of the fathers that I've been reading for 30 years. There's something about reading them within a group that opens up the text in a beautiful way. I read the fathers every single day and there are certain books that I've read dozens of times over, The Ladder of Divine Ascent. But when you're in a group that You have everyone immersed in the text, the comments that are made, the questions that are put forward, always transform the way that I read the text, but also the things that I hear, sometimes for the first time in three decades. And so I appreciate your your willingness to go through this text in this way. And I hope it is as rich for you as it is for me. So again, we're on page 51 and we'll begin simply with the prayer itself. O heavenly King, the comforter, the spirit of truth, who art everywhere and fillest all things, treasury of blessings and giver of life, come and abide in us and cleanse us from every impurity and save our souls, O thou who art good. So such a brief text, and as you can uh, see, even reading through it once in a cursory way, how much it expresses. And this is what Clement will be unpacking for us. I tried to do a little research to find out its origin and it's muddied a little bit by history. It's been, uh, most writers think from around the year 1100 is where we see it being spoken about throughout the church as a whole, broadly being used uh, within uh, the praying of the hours uh, in particular. Uh, But the Copts actually find the text almost verbatim in a fifth century work. And so this can be one of the earliest prayers, certainly to the Holy Spirit, and it creates an interesting link then too, before there are any breaks or divisions between say the Copts and the other Eastern churches, that there was this prayer in com- that they held in common, and that is so much a part of their, of their spiritual life. So it's nice to know that the, it reaches so far back in Christian, Christian history. So Clement begins. This is the most common prayer to the Holy Spirit in the Orthodox Church. We never began any important activity, whether in church or in the world, without saying it. Within the church, it is the prayer that leads into every prayer because every authentic prayer unfolds within the breath of the Spirit. So already here in the first paragraph, he had me uh, that uh, it precedes everything that we do and every prayer that we utter as Christian men and women. And every authentic prayer, every prayer that we have that is to be authentic, that is to arise out of more than our own emotions or our own thoughts or even our daily trials, but arise from a deeper place within us, has to begin with calling upon the Holy Spirit. And the reason for this, he gives in the next sentence, which is one of my favorites, uh, quotes from St. Paul. Uh, he says, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with sighs too deep for words. And that's Romans eight twenty-six. And so we're temples of the Holy Spirit. And uh, again, we, we often don't reflect upon this reality enough that uh, uh, I read recently uh, from, I think it was from Clement himself saying that uh, beyond the furthest scope of the universe, there is our face, if you will, because the Holy Spirit dwells within us now, and he who sustains all things in life Uh, dwells now within our heart and so in a sense the whole universe and as well as the kingdom of God itself dwells within us and if we could even for a moment take hold of that and be this have this as the guiding principle for us in our day-to-day life how that would transform the way that we see ourselves our own dignity and destiny the things that we expose ourselves to how we engage and look upon other people, how we speak to them, how we would recognize that within them is God himself. And so there should be this profound reverence that we have for other, other people simply knowing who they are and who they, they bear within them. You know, I think in a society that is quickly falling into greater and greater violence and aggression, uh, to have even a small group of people, be able to interiorize this and have it be something that guides and shapes our life, uh, can something be something that holds the world together. We often hear saints and today's St. Philip Neri's feast day in, in the West. He said, if there are 10, if I had 10 truly detached men, I could convert the world. And so if you had a small group of people who understood this about themselves, and their dignity, but also uh, again, that they have the, the very kingdom within them, the spirit dwelling within them, it's going to shape their prayer and everything that they do in such a way that it has uh, a snowballing effect upon everyone that they encounter. Uh, Saint Sarovim of Sarov said, uh, he who has the peace of Christ within him will save thousands that coming into contact with somebody who bears within them the peace of Christ is is going to bring to them the salvation that Christ offers. The mere encounter with a saint is often enough to be transformative. We hear people who talk uh, constantly about having this encounter with Mother Teresa of Calcutta or Pope Shenouda in the Coptic church, who's uh, a very holy, a holy man as well, or John Paul II. Philip Neri. it was said that his countenance was uh, almost radiated because of his purity of heart that existed from the earliest years uh, of his life. And that uh, when men would come to him for confession, especially those struggling with impurity, he had this, uh, I don't know if you've heard of, Philip's Pentecost. He was praying in preparation for the Feast of Pentecost in the catacombs of Rome, in particular of St. Sebastian. And there he has his own Pentecost. The Holy Spirit uh, manifests itself as a fire, like almost a globe of fire that enters into Philip's mouth and, and down into his chest. And Philip falls upon the ground and cries out, no more, God, no more, I I can bear no more. And it expands his heart to such an extent that for the rest of his life, his heart would palpitate so loudly that it would shake the room, that others could hear it. Or when he would go into ecstasy during mass, uh, he would bite down on the chalice to hold himself from slipping into ecstasy. Uh, But the beautiful thing about it is that when they would come to confession, he would draw them near to his chest and that uh, beating of this heart filled with the Holy Spirit would immediately bring them comfort and also strength in that spiritual battle for purity. And uh, I think in our day, especially in the West, we have a tendency to overly intellectualize the faith or treat the faith in a creedal fashion, we believe this or we believe this about Christ. And it's true. That's part of uh, what we do as Christian men and women. We believe in a revealed religion that God has manifested himself and in a distinctive, unique way. And it changes the way that we understand God, but also who we are as human beings. So, so there are specific things that we believe and hold to be true. But faith is something far greater for us. Uh, We always have to move from the mind to the heart, from what is notional to this experiential knowledge of God in and through faith. And for those who are familiar with St. John of the Cross, he describes faith as a dark, obscure knowing. It's a, a way of comprehending what is beyond the limits and confines of intellect, reason, memory, imagination. So no matter how deep our understanding of the faith might be, it can never compare to what is revealed to us through faith and through the spirit of truth dwelling within our hearts, revealing God to us. And so far as we live our faith only in our minds, it's going to be an abstraction. God is going to be out there or is going to be an idea. It's only when it becomes a matter of experiential knowledge, this comprehension that comes through the gift of faith, through prayer, through the ascetic life, that it becomes something real and transformative. And so ultimately this is where uh, Clement is of one mind with with all the, the fathers that have gone before him. Uh, In fact, to try to live our faith life out simply on the notional level uh, as an intellectual uh, set of propositions or philosophy is something that can be quite dangerous to us as well that uh, the fathers say that the only theology arises out of this experiential knowledge of God through the life of prayer, through purifying the heart from the passions, to removing every impediment in our minds and our hearts from receiving the grace that God desires to give us. True theology is this experiential knowledge, but to avoid the ascetic life, the life of prayer and to study things about the faith and to write about them is to fall into what the fathers call demonic theology. We do not know what spirit is guiding us. We know at least it's it's our own ego, the spirit of our own selves that is probably guiding most of it. Uh, But it can also be demonic if we are not living holy lives. So the fathers would have no understanding of schools of theology that are removed from this formative aspect of the ascetic life. And I think this is where even seminaries, I think seminarians would probably agree with me here. Uh, this, I get up on my soapbox whenever we start talking about this, that I think seminaries should be uh, raised to the ground and then rebuilt uh, on, on this understanding that the emphasis needs to be shifted to the formation of mind and heart. What is most important for those who are going to serve the church is that they be true shepherds, that they have hearts after Christ, that they've put on the mind of Christ, that they love those that they serve. It's not based upon talent or any gifts or ability. It's based upon one's love for the Lord and the depth of that faith. And so our formation should, be, should begin there with the life of prayer and with the, the means that God has given us that are the, the most perfect means of communion, the, the sacraments. And uh, you know, I think exposing people to the mystery of the Divine Liturgy is the most powerful form of evangelization that we have. And so the time that we spend in preparing for liturgy and engaging in it should be our primary focus. It should not be something that we do quickly and want to get over as quickly as possible. Uh, There was we had a sort of a new celebrity coming to where I used to live uh, at the oratory and we were very well known in the Pittsburgh area and it was great. She was coming. She was not Catholic uh, but a friend brought her to mass because it was a place of great comfort for them and they had a daughter who went through cancer and eventually passed away from it, but they found great comfort in the chapel and the Eucharist, uh, even though they came from a Presbyterian background. And, uh, And so they brought this person who was suffering from cancer, but she was quoted as saying how she loved the oratory because no matter what liturgy you go to, it always, it never goes over a half an hour, which was not true, by the way. But, uh, but the, I, you could see the mindset there that w- we often approach things in a utilitarian way, even the way that we approach God, that our liturgy should be efficient and they should be done in a fa- timely fashion and priests should not preach any longer than eight minutes or we're going to, uh, you know, bore our our communities, and uh, I understand why that's so. And maybe it's because uh, preaching has lost its bite. We don't have Christum or Chrysologus or Augustine of their preaching, uh, but rather perhaps too many speaking off the top of their head again, rather than uh, from the depths of their heart, and. Uh, and so, where was I? I lost my place here. <laughs> Help me get off my soapbox quickly. Uh, so, yes.
2: Just real quick, because as I was driving here, I heard a comment. I was listening to something. I heard a comment. We were talking about communion and resource model. Describe it. But they made the in the in that conversation the context of it because you said like the school of thought or no sorry the school of theology. Mm-hmm versus the lived experience and, and whatnot. The comment was made that what goes wrong a lot of times in schools of schools of theology mm-hmm. or what seems to go wrong is the people so that it begins with like there's this great master mm-hmm. who who sees like has right. this very clear vision and then all of his quote unquote students around him not mm-hmm. his fault, right. like, what grows around him somehow they end up trying to to look at him, and he's trying to get them to look within right. to Christ, right. But They end up looking at him, and then things over time you mm-hmm. know, like, implode on themselves. And that's where you can get away from, like, and maybe think like the, the person who they're all kind of like, looking at at the first point is probably living, you know, more of that, that ascetic life and yeah. that prayerful life and those things. And that's why all that you know right. that's what draws this in, in the first place and, like, when that's lost.
1: That's right. And I think this is why, right. And I think that this is why this prayer, as short as it is, is so important to draw us back to where we, we need to be, that even the MDiv, you know, is tied to this idea of wanting to be, keep up with the world, that we have MDs. You know, doctors of medicine or PhDs, and so there's this movement to want to be respected within the culture, and so we'll give we'll grant a degree as well, an MDiv, uh, which sounds impressive, uh, but it's uh, it's meant to be sort of a broader, uh, more complete kind of a focus upon the formation of of the person. Are you looking for a book? Is it Chris? uh, uh, um, it's, uh... Kef- Kevin, no, 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 Ken. Ken, Ken, the books are on the table here if you, right. you'd like one and we are on page 52. Right. Okay, you. sure. Yes. What,
0: uh, what really struck me that you just said there was um, priests who love the people they serve. Mm-hmm. And yeah, of everything so far that just like struck mm-hmm. me the most, because I think, I think everyone knows if they've been blessed enough to get to have that experience, which is in itself a sad thing to say, because that means it's rare, and I think it is rare. I mean, if there's anyone who's like, oh, I felt loved by almost every priest who I've ever been around, I'd be like, oh, right. oh, what world do
1: you live in?
0: Right. I think it is. But you know, just saying it that way shows how rare it is. But like the last time I went to confession, you know, I was pretty upset and. Um, the priest just like spontaneously reached out and put his hands on my head during absolution. And this was Roman rite, so it's not part of the rite at all. Like we don't, and it was just this like spontaneous thing that just like, I don't know, just being absolved that way. Like it was so beautiful, you know, And, and it just was so meaningful. And I think we've all had these experiences where like we're looked at a certain way or spoken to a certain way or we receive a sacrament in a certain way. Um, sometimes just the way the priest looks at you uh, before he gives you communion can Mm -hmm. communicate so much. Um, I was at Good Friday last year, and uh, I was at Tenebrae, and we, were, we had a relic of the True Cross there, mm-hmm. and everyone was coming up to venerate the True Cross, and the priest was, like, so moved mm-hmm. by people and the devotion, and it's been Good Friday, so they've all been fasting all day, and they already had veneration of the cross, and now they came again for Tenebrae, mm-hmm. and, and he was, like, weeping, mm-hmm. and as he blessed people and held out the relic for them, and it just like i feel like i'm almost going to get choked up now like it just Mm -hmm. it's really that's what like i don't want to be heretical so i'm not going to say that that being ordained is not what makes you persona christi because it does and are persona christi even if you're the meanest priest in existence but (laughs) communicating persona christi to the people that is a whole other thing and ordination does not do that like being Persona Christi to the people to whom Christ wants to come is a whole other thing. And to learn to love a random parish full of people, Mm. or a random community of people. That's an extraordinary thing. And you can't do that on your own. No one is capable of walking into a community or a parish and just being like, I'm gonna spontaneously love everyone here. Like, it doesn't happen like that. And I just think, yeah, I just think that's so beautiful. And you can see it, and it reminds me of what you said about like Philip's eyes. And as you said that, I was thinking how amazing it is now not, all, right, like every saint, every modern saint who we canonize now, we basically have photographs of them. But not, not all of those saints have that, their, their sanctity might just be manifest in a different way. That there are saints that you have photographs of and they, you know what Philip looked like because of those saints. Mm-hmm. It's like Saint Paisius, mm-hmm. Pope Shenouda, mm-hmm. I mean. Yeah. A- every single photograph of Pope Shenouda just mm-hmm. makes you want to cry, like it's so beautiful. And uh, Padre Pio, Gemma, uh, Charles de Foucault, he's mm-hmm. one of those, they just have this, it's so
1: beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Oh. Yeah. Well, I think a priest has to be able to do that even when he walks into a parish. And it's not simply his own love. And I think that's part of this prayer. It's the love that dwells within him, uh, the very spirit of Christ that he's to manifest to his congregation. So even coming into a parish for the first time, it has to be evident in the way that he celebrates the liturgy. And if you come to divine liturgy tomorrow morning, the gospel is our Lord asking Peter, do you love me, feed my sheep, and, you know, each time he, the, the Lord asks him, do you love me, agape? And, you know, asking, do you love me with this perfect, this kind of divine love that withholds nothing. And Peter changes the word, you know, I love you like a, a friend kind of thing. And, uh, and each time the Lord says, feed my sheep. And the final time the Lord asks him, he uses the word that Peter uses. And so the Lord understands that Peter had not Understood as of yet, and so he, lower, he, he lowers himself down to where Peter is to be able to engage him, to where Peter is able to make that ascent at the moment. Peter eventually, certainly, would become strengthened after Pentecost, you know, to the point where he's able to, you know, get up and preach before thousands of people in the most dynamic way, and and ultimately to give his life. But he he wasn't able to make that ascent yet until the descent of the, the Holy Spirit, that gives him this capacity to love, not just the perfection of natural virtue, but to love in a godly way, a way that goes beyond w- what we can acknowledge or embrace, to love enemies, to, lo- to, you know, tolerate the intolerable in our life, or, you know, those who have caused us great harm. Okay, we're moving on with the text, I'm sorry. The amaran. The point applies also to our prayer in the world where only the Spirit can unite that which is visible to that which is invisible, both which according to Maximus the Confessor must be symbols of one another, a figure of Christ. So there's a drawing together by the Spirit of the visible and the invisible that we, who who are human beings are given this capacity to love in a godly way and it's absolutely necessary that this takes place in order to be able to manifest it to the world that we are to be sacraments of christ we are to make present what this reality means for us as human beings men and women should see Christ in us in the most concrete way. Every once in a while you'll hear people say, oh, I wish I lived in the time of Christ. If I could have just heard him you know, preach on the Sermon on the Mount or felt his touch, how different things would be. And the saints would say, nonsense. What we experience is far deeper than what the apostles themselves experienced because of what we experience through the gift of the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, that we know that the very spirit that searches the depths of God searches our depths, but also brings to life there the, the life of the kingdom and its fullness. And the more that we remove every impediment to that, that reality, the, the greater our capacity to love and to manifest Christ to the world. And this draws us back to the ascetic life. You know, it can't just be in our minds that we have to exercise our faith in an ever so concrete way. The way that we pray, the way that we seek to overcome our passions, the appetites and uh, desires that direct and guide our life uh, on a day-to-day basis. And like Paul says, we have to take every thought captive And the only way we do that is again by the grace of the Holy Spirit. That every one of the forty thousand thoughts that come to our mind on a daily basis and run through our mind have to be shaped and guided by the grace of the Spirit. Otherwise, we are going to become fragmented, and this is exactly what happens. We're we're pulled not only by our passions, but by all of these thoughts in such a way that we become distracted from the remembrance of God. And slowly God slips away from being the center of our life to being pushed out to the furthest margins. Uh, I often will bring up uh, this Father Anthony or the Father Lazarus. Uh, There's a little video on YouTube called The Last Anchorite Are any of you familiar with that? Superb. Australian. Australian, right. And uh, he's a communist philosopher. His mother passed away, and uh, he went through a conversion, and he met with, uh, it was the Coptic patriarch at the time who encourages him to become a monk of St. Anthony's Monastery in Egypt, and eventually he becomes a hermit up on the mountain above the, the monastery. And so they, there's this beautiful, it's only about 20 minutes long. So I encourage it, encourage you to read it. But he said, you know, if we, if our prayer consists of saying a few prayers in the morning before we go to work and going to divine liturgy on the weekend and saying a couple prayers at night and maybe a few throughout the course of the day, he said, then our faith is an auxiliary construction which was a term that Sigmund Freud used, that it is a psychological construct, that it's something that's important for us because it gives us a kind of stability of mind in our day-to-day life and dealing with day-to-day trials. But it's exactly what Freud says, we're clinging to something that's a construct of the mind, but it's not based in any lived reality or experience. So suddenly when you hear that from, this hermit, and you read a text like Clement's here, you realize my life can't, I can't live my life as if God is out there, and I can no longer pray in the way that even my own mind tells me is a disciplined way of praying or responsive. My response to God has to be guided by the God himself who dwells within me. And if we allowed ourselves to be guided by the Spirit in terms of how we pray from moment to moment and the depth of our immersion in prayer, then our prayer life would probably look radically different. And the things that we would expose ourselves throughout the course of the day, we would run from. Uh, In one of our groups this week on the Ladder of Divine Ascent, we got to speaking about memory and imagination that once they've been formed, once we've engaged in certain activities in our life or allowed ourselves to be exposed to things that are contrary to the will and the love of God, these things do not, even if we repent from them, they do do not disappear from the imagination and the memory. To reach that level of purity of heart requires then a radical opening of, of the self that that spirit can reach to the depths of the unconscious, of the heart, in order to bring about healing for us. The fathers tell us that that's possible, but we have to realize, as Freud said, that in the unconscious, there's no sense of time. So everything that we've seen, heard, or exposed ourselves to over the course of our lifetime is there, even if we aren't conscious of it. There uh, until something triggers it and then something can re- come back to our memory from past experiences. Our imagination can take hold of it and then once our imagination takes hold of it, it can develop into a whole storyline, fantasy, and we can find ourselves swimming around in a whole story for most of the day. And so I often br- will bring this up about you know, young boys being exposed to pornography now at age eight for the fir- first time, and you think, oh my gosh, what does that do to them psychologically as well as spiritually, that they have these images that are, are very dynamic now. It's not static images, but these images in their mind that they were exposed to this very formative part of their life, and most of the, peop- most of the, uh, the individuals that I talk to over time who are addicted to this hate it with a passion which it was never part of their life, but it has become a passion, a habitual sin, because it's just so deeply rooted. And the only way to uh, get out of that is, you know, I know there are a lot of like these sex addict groups like AA, you know, there's an SA and things like that, and they can be helpful. But the only way out of it is an ascetical life that leads us into this deep life of grace where the Holy Spirit, can penetrate those parts of our, our minds and our hearts and the places that we do not even see and don't want to see that we've repressed that can bring the deepest kind of healing to us. Yes.
0: So what, I guess, so what you're saying is if you haven't exposed those kind of images mm. or are continually exposed to them, I mean, the Holy Spirit can't purify them, right? Mm-hmm. I feel like, for example, the other day, um, I started watching a television show that I thought would be relatively innocuous. I didn't think it'd be perfect, but you know, what is out there? It's hard. Um, and then, you know, half, five, few episodes in, like something it just horrifying. right? right? It, it, it comes up in the television show, you know, really like a deeply mm-hmm. s- distorted sexual moment. And it's hard to like take that out of your mind. Like I didn't want it. <laughs> mm-hmm. I didn't want to hear it, didn't want to see it, never even thought that existed. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden right. it's there, right? And and then and then how do you, I, I, what's the steps to purifying your mind right. through that?
1: Well, it, it's repentance. It's there. Yeah, right? it's repentance and viewing repentance as a constant reality for us, that every moment of our life we're turning toward God and that we allow our love for him and the things of the kingdom to push out our attachment to the things of this world. And uh, But once we've been exposed to those things, that the repentance has to become deeper and deeper until we develop not only a hatred for the sin, but for everything that would lead us into it. So we would begin to avoid and push out of our life anything that would have the potential of drawing us into a sin, or presenting us with an image or an idea that could eventually be taken hold of by our thoughts or put before us by Satan as a specific temptation to draw us uh, down a particular path and enliven a passion within us that we thought we were over with decades ago even. And even if it's not,
0: I'm just saying. Like, I'm not saying I was completely innocent. Like, I'm not saying. Well, no. <laughs> like, no, I, I mean, no. I'm not saying. Like, but I didn't ask to see this image. Yeah. You know either. Well,
1: the the yes. Okay. Because we we have to not again not only hate the sin, but everything that could potentially lead us to it, and even when we repent and of a sin and go to confession you know, why we backslide is that we're still attached to the things that lead to those sins. So if we were, pro- if we, all of us here really wanted to live for God fully and to have purity of heart, we would probably not watch television. And I don't want to sound strident, as strident here, but I think it's become such that there is nothing on television or Netflix or YouTube that isn't infected by this. And so there has to be, you know, when Christ says, if your hand causes your sin, cut it off. If your eye cuts sin, pluck it out. Well, you might have to pluck out the eye of Netflix. <laughs> even, even, yeah, even if you're only watching those Korean, uh, romance <laughs> <laughs> uh, it drama. <laughs> <wrong>. <laughs> because, it's, because it's, it's, it's so permeated our world and our culture now that to, to guard and to cherish purity of heart means that we would be doing everything that we can that our love is, for God is so great that we would be doing everything that we can to move away from those things and uh, here is where I would recommend Pope Shenouda's book The Life mm-hmm. of Repentance and Purity of Heart You know, he's able to capture everything that the fathers speak of, but in this beautiful and accessible clarity. But it radically changes the way that you look at your life because nothing is insignificant in that regard. And we're so often taught, we're formed in this way. Oh, that's not a big deal. And so, and we have our own rated G, rated PG, PG PG-13. It means nothing in our culture and in mind because everything's filled with innuendo that eventually our our minds can take hold of in in some form or another. It was uh, Pope, or not Pope, uh, Benedict Rochelle, the founder of the Franciscan Friars of the Renewal. He would be on EWTN all the time and somebody phoned in with a question about this and you know about, you know, would the saints like watch television or something like that? And he said, the saints would not watch television. I know Mother's probably gonna get mad at me for saying this, (laughs) but they they would never, they wouldn't have a television in their, their house precisely because, not because of Mother, what's on Mother Angelica, but because of what's on every other, every other station.
0: ew Chen is probably the only place that you're really safe, because even if you're watching something as seemingly innocuous as it allows on the yeah. Prairie.
1: <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. Well,
0: yeah. Last right.
1: well, but e- e- even, <laughs> uh, and then this is the final, final, final thought, and then we'll go to Daniel, and we're getting back to the text. But even with things that are, are religious these days, we have to be very careful, because so much of what's going on in the Christian forum online and on Christi- in Christian programming is so adversarial and it's so directed to liturgy wars, to wars about certain theological points. It's not that those things are unimportant, but they're so filled with uh, a kind of a- aggression and agitation that they can stir, stir the heart to anger. So if I were to respond to somebody who was saying, you know, Father David, what, what should I do to enrich my spiritual life? I, I would not even point them to EWTN or anything like that. I would say stop watching television, stop, you know, and, uh, you know, using your cell phone because it's right at hand. Our temptation is to go to it over and over again. You know, get rid of all those things and reshape your life by the things that lead to God. You'd be surprised about the amount of time. People say all the time, I don't have time for prayer. When in reality, there would be gobs of time that would open up to us if we allowed ourselves simply to begin praying. Because the moment we begin praying is when all of a sudden time begins to emerge. When God sees the desire within our heart manifests itself. He gives greater grace and greater desire for us to turn to Him to prayer. And then suddenly the time opens up up for uh, that desire to be satisfied. It's part part of a problem is not to trust that. And we, we, we place prayer along the same priority line that we do with everything else that we do during the course of the day. I have my classes to go to. I have, you know, my work, my job to go to. I have to go pick up this, that. And prayer. And so we'll tr- treat prayer as uh, something that we'll check off. And again, that'll take us to the same end that Father Lazarus is talking about. Eventually, our prayer will become an auxiliary construction. We're checking it off because it gives us a psychological sense of comfort that we're right with God and that we're, we're going to be given the things that, that we need to do well at our job or to be protected. Well, I don't know if you've read the gospel lately, but pretty much everything in there that tells you that your life in this world is not going to be a pleasant one. You will be hated by all. And, you know, people will kill you simply for, you know, professing your faith within me. And when we read the Beatitudes, you know, it turns the world upside down. And the only way that it can be possible for us to listen to them without turning our lives upside down is because we've domesticated them, as we've done with the rest of the gospel as a whole. And as a Latin Rite priest, it would always, uh, it it struck me, but in this very uncomfortable way, I would read this gospel where you must not resist one who is evil. And you'd say the gospel of the Lord and everybody would say praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. And it's like, did you just hear the, the same thing that I just heard? We're being told not to resist one who's evil. And uh, or whether it's love your enemies or, or so many of the other sayings of Christ, that we can say that we can offer that response in an automated kind of way in the same way that we could go to liturgy in an automated way and receive the Holy Eucharist because it's become part and parcel of our day-to-day life and schedule. Quick thought, and then we're moving on. Okay.
2: Um, so just
1: coming off
2: of my Okay. Like I, <laughs> listening to the, thing, the the conversation there was, like, like I drove here and I turned on a it's not a bad podcast. Mm. But it's still that thing where it's like, Filling that void in time with things, and it's very easy to do that. Versus, like when you um, look at the lives of the saints, or like the other things we've read, right? Like Saint Isaac the Syrian, and he was he fled in the desert, and there's even people that, who wasn't. Um, I don't know, Some of the some of the other like desert monk saints right. would flee deeper and deeper into the silence, not to avoid people, but to to remove themselves from distraction. Right. So that like I think we can like like my podcast thing like this isn't bad and it may not be but we're very like legalistic over good and bad and Mm
1: -hmm. repent and comprehend the Mm gospel and this
2: versus you know like repentance would be turning towards God so like maybe a better turning towards God in that moment is 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 is, is, like you said I mean it's an hour of quiet time in the car we could spend some time praying in the car or it's little things right? it's like throughout the day right. at work it's listening to a different podcast or you know when i have oh, a free minute here reading a sports thing or something right. like that right like there's little things so it's like but but i will say the one thing that i also think of is um when i say this and it's not like as in hey i said this and now now i don't mean mm-hmm. any of that but it's like um st john climate has a has a somewhere in the latter words it's like to like, want to be a saint is the first step. Right. To begin to imitate them is the second. But to think you can just be like them all at once is just foolish and you're gonna, you know what I mean? Right. It's a process right. towards it, so it's like a patience with yourself along the way, right? Like recognizing, you're gonna keep recognizing it because you're gonna keep not doing it.
1: Okay, I'll stop you right there. I got your point, and it's a good one. You know, we have to learn to love silence. If silence is the language of the kingdom, and it's in silence that God speaks to the heart, then we have to learn to cherish it and to protect it, and so not turning on the radio. And, you know, I have qualms about even podcasting. And I post, as you know, a lot of of quotes of the saints and the fathers. But there's something within me at times that gets agitated wonders. Am I simply adding to a consumerist approach to religion, producing podcasts or putting out sayings of the fathers, these little snippets outside of the greater context. Is this being formative? Is there a hope here that this is going to enliven a desire to read the fathers? Or is it providing something that a person consumes very quickly, my religion for the day, and moves on? Am I adding to the noise of the world is, is part of my thought. And, you know, the older I get, the more I start to think about moving into uh, a life of solitude, not because I don't think, the, uh, uh, you know, ministry and active ministry is important, but I see the, th- the things in the world and in my own heart, and you begin to, you begin to think, you know, o- only God you know, working in a person's mind and heart so fully and sanctifying them. Only by becoming a saint is the world changed or is unity brought about. And it's not brought, it's not going to be brought about by uh, a council. It's not gonna be brought about by this sort of everybody agreeing on certain teachings. It's going to be something, it's God who brings about unity. uh, The oneness that is part of the life of the Trinity and we're living this illusion that somehow our discussions over the course of the centuries, you know, we'll get, we'll get past those eventually. Well, we got past the big things long time ago and it hasn't brought any, you know, greater unity. In fact, there's more disunity than, than ever. And, uh, and so, You know, I'm I'm sort of leaning more to the Benedict Grouchois idea. (laughs) It's like. (laughs) Yeah, I highly. Deactivation pledge many times. I know. (laughs) I'm like,
0: don't delete it, don't delete
1: it. Please stop. Okay, well, we're getting back to the text here, but I think it's when you read this, though, that it does challenge these fundamental assumptions that we have about our life and what has importance and value. Christ exists within the Spirit and imparts Him to us. His ecclesial body is the place from which this gift springs forth or perhaps flows out bit by bit. With his unction, Jesus anoints the members of his body, making them Christ-like, making them a prophetic people. While Pentecost is inaugurated on the occasion symbolically described in the Acts of the Apostles, it is not limited to that day. It continues on unfolding or burrowing deep through what is ultimately an undauntable zeal toward the ultimate one. It does so at times in secret and at times bursting forth, preparing and anticipating through through the Eucharist, through Eucharistic beings, the return of all things to Christ. And so it's a long sentence, Uh, but the idea that he's saying here is that Pentecost is something that is to be taking place in our day-to-day life and is taking place in our day-to-day life and all these different manifestations completely in secret. We might be engaged in prayer and unaware of it, but the Spirit is uh, reaching into our depths and allowing that life of Christ to emerge in a fuller and fuller fashion. Sometimes it does burst forth. Sometimes it's experienced most powerfully in receiving the Holy Eucharist, Uh, but all of it is, meant to be drawing us into this oneness with Christ, and then so oneness with the the Holy Trinity uh, as a whole. And uh, so we're drawn into something far greater than the original innocence of Adam and Eve. You know, what we, in uh, the uh, Latin Rite, the, uh, at the Easter Vigil, the exalted, O oh, happy fault, oh necessary sin of Adam that game for us such a redeemer. That something far greater has been made possible for us through the incarnation and through the Paschal mystery. We've been raised up not simply out of our sin, but to participate in the eternal life and love of God. And when we reduce again the faith to a, a to something that's legalistic or moralistic. It's not that there are laws, not moral laws that we are to follow and embrace That's part of our life. But when we reduce our faith to that, then we're, we're losing sight of this far grander, grander reality that we are participating in at every moment of our life, which is the life of the most holy trinity. And so we begin, you have to begin to ask yourself, why am I spending so much time doing this or that or talking about the the faith with people in this or that fashion when I should be simply focusing upon living that reality to the fullness where I might not have to say a word to another person if I'm, I'm living this reality that is going to manifest itself even in my silence. And this is what we again, we hear over and over again, over and over again from the Desert Fathers. You you hear these little stories from the modern elders where, you know, they bring these guys that want to hear a word from this noted elder on Mount Athos and he sits there and he says nothing. And the guys, you know, who, who are just curious walk away sort of disgusted. And the disciple comes back and, you know, why, why, you know, why didn't you say anything to them? And he says, well, if they aren't edified by my silence, they're not going to be edified by my words. If there's not something that they see and perceive in my silence, in my very being, then it's either because something is lacking in me or it's something that they cannot perceive and what they are looking for is driven by curiosity. They want to speak to this well-known elder. This is why we find the Desert Fathers going further and further into the desert, because once people found out about them, they were being hunted down. Father, speak a word. Tell us, you know, tell us something to guide us in the spiritual life. And there is always a danger that the focus would be turned back upon them or that they would be drawn out of what really feeds that divine wisdom, which is the life of silent prayer immersed in the life of the Spirit, where they are in communion with God. And so even they would flee, you know, from this responsibility that sometimes was put upon them against their will.
2: How did you understand his use of the words Eucharistic being" in that last sentence?
1: That, that, that is what we are, are to become that the love that is manifest to us in the Eucharist and how it is made manifest to us, the means, which is the cross. Christ allows himself to be broken and poured out for the life of the world. That we are to manifest that love, this unconditional, canotic, self-emptying love to the world. And so we do well to contemplate whether or not we should walk up to the altar and receive the Holy Eucharist, because we are saying amen to that love, that I'm receiving this love, but I'm also going to allow it to transform me to such an extent that I become Eucharist for others, that I allow myself to be broken and will allow myself to be broken and poured out in love, even to the cost of my own life. And I often feel that we misread the passage where Jesus teaches explicitly about the Eucharist, uh, John six, the the bread of life discourse. And, you know, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you have no life within you. For my flesh is real life, is real food. My blood is real drink. And we were told that half of his disciples walk away and our our, our immediate thought is, well, they just didn't understand him, you know, and so they think he's talking crazy stuff. And my thought is that they understood him well enough. They had been following him and listening to his teachings, everything that he was saying about going to Jerusalem, where he was going to be put to death and rise again, everything that he had been teaching them about loving of enemies. Now he's saying, I'm going to become this. And, And when your master says, I'm going to become this, if you're his disciple, that means you're going to become this which means if he's going to be Eucharist for all of us and for others, then when we, the moment that we receive him, we are saying our amen, so be it to become exactly that. So we're to become Eucharistic beings. And, you know, I don't, no matter how deep we think our faith is, immediately when we're put in a set of circumstances where people are lashing out at us, our defense mechanisms are going to rise and we're going to draw that line in the sand and say nothing doing i still have daydreams about when i was a kid fight fights with kids in high school or or you know c- scenarios on the f- football field memories will will come to mind you know of flying down the field and flinging my body through the air and you think, how, how nuts is that? Um, I, I have this very vivid, visceral memory of this aggressive act of trying to knock somebody off their feet, and f- 40 years later, it's, it's still in, in my memory where something will trigger it and bring it back to mind. And so-
2: Did I say something?
1: Yes. <laughs> if you if you slowed down my gestures you'd probably see <laughs>
0: My my, my, with people my micro cry.
1: gestures were probably a growl. I'm <laughs> so bad, I'll
0: literally like, start saying the actual words and have conversations. I'll walk down the street and I'll like, see that someone's in yeah. the car. And I'm right. Up,
1: like, well, th- think about that. <laughs> <a,
0: laughs> I, I pretend I have a earpiece. I'm like. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, f- f- think about that. The imaginary conversations that we have with people in our mind mm. who have said something mean to us. We we can walk around thinking if that person says this to me again, I'm going to say this to them. This is it? Yeah. Or if only I'd said this. That's right. And again, you know, not to be, I think that's sort of our our natural Mm -hmm. response. And that is, that comes into play when our defense mechanisms are are engaged. But then we're to be living our life on a different level our life in Christ and guided by the Spirit so that we are able to receive those things as he did on the cross, arms wide open to receive all that was thrust upon him, the entire, entirety of the world's sin. And he does not, he takes that upon himself and he does not give it back with double barrels to others in wrath. You know, because even his disciples, you know, when he's rejected, was it by the uh, uh, Samaritans? And the disciples say, shall we call down a fire from heaven to consume them? And you can, one can only imagine what must have been going through Christ's mind at that point. It's like, you guys haven't been listening to a word I've been saying. You know, you know so the moment that he's insulted, they, they want to fry them. And that, that will, and that should be a sobering thing to us because they're the, but the grace of God go I, that if somebody pushes us in a similar way, um, uh, we, would, we would think we might not do that, but we might think the same thing in our own, in our own fashion. So to be, I'm glad you brought attention to it to become Eucharistic beings. And uh, we don't talk enough about this within the life of the church. And, uh, you know, everybody comes to communion now, and so it becomes herd mentality, group think. And rather than arising out of deep reflection, uh, it was, we read St. Theophan the Recluse, and he was writing these letters to a young woman named Anastasia who asked him to be his spiritual, her spiritual director. And at one point, uh, he's talking, they're about ready to enter into Lent and in one of the footnotes it said, in Russia at that time, everybody would take off the week leading up to Lent. So they could enter into their spiritual disciplines as fully as possible into their fasting and prepare themselves to go to confession at the end of that uh, week and receive communion. So they could enter into Lent without any impediment. They could hit the ground running in order that it would bear as much fruit as possible. Who, who of us have ever thought about, I'm going to take my vacation this year and I'm going to take it that week that leads up to Ash Wednesday or to Meat Fair Sunday or Cheese Fair, you know, that I'm going to, I'm going to even, you know, start earlier. But th- that's a religious mindset and a culture that formed and shaped the, the religious imagination of the time. And we've stepped out of all, all that together. And it's something that we want to recapture for ourselves. How, how do we live in this reality? And there's nothing in our culture that's going to support it. Nothing in our Catholic school systems. I mean, everything's falling apart. And there's nobody that's going to teach you about the fathers. I mean, you're going to have to pick up the books and, and read them and fall in love with them.
0: I literally do the opposite. Like, I don't schedule any vacations during fasting periods because it feels like a waste of a vacation. <laughs> you know, Like, I can't eat what I want, I can't drink what I want. Yeah. Like, why would I go on vacation yeah. to be restricted? Yeah. Like, it's
1: terrible. Well, this is where we have to change our, our language. And in other groups, we've talked about this book by Adelberg de Vogue to love fasting that he entered into it in the way that the Desert Fathers entered it in, into it, a regular fast, remember a daily 24 hour fast. And he began to see what the Desert Fathers saw that it deepened their prayer in this incredible way, that fasting wasn't an episodic thing that they did. Now in the Western uh, right, it's Ash Wednesday and Good Friday are the only ob- obligatory days, but he's saying, We've got to go, he went to every Benedictine monastery throughout the world and found that none of them embraced this kind of fasting or anything near it. Every monastery had three daily meals with multiple choices that the monks could have. And he said, there's something not right with this about this. And so he enters into experimenting, gradually moving into this until he begins to see the fruit of it. And we have to learn to love fasting, to love the ascetic disciplines, to love prayer, to love spiritual reading, and uh, to love Lent. You know, I've mentioned before that St. Benedict in his role mentions the word joy. Somebody did a word study of the role, and joy is mentioned the most in his writings on Lent. And part of the reason for that is that for a monk entering more deeply into the spiritual disciplines allows one to experience greater freedom in the life of the spirit and allows that experience of receiving Holy Communion to become richer and richer. And so the one who loves fasting and loves prayer is going to lament when the bell for the refectory is rung, when the bell for dinner is rung. Whereas the one who does not love the ascetic life is you know, going to be falling asleep during the time of prayer and jump, jump up and be filled with energy when it's time to run to the refectory for dinner. And so you know, we have gradually, again, turned things on their head, but in the wrong way, that how is it that we view our life now as the spiritual warfare where we're seeking to overcome the passions in order that there's no, again, no impediment to the action of the spirit in our life. How is it that we exercise our faith in such a way that this becomes the reality? And if we sit down and create a role, prayer role for ourselves and allow ourselves even to think about it for a short period of time, you know, I think the, the, the contours of our life would, would be much, much different. Okay, we're moving forward. O oh, heavenly king, the comforter of the spirit of truth. Again, a lot packed into one little phrase. The word king affirms the spirit's divinity as the second ecumenical council did in 381. The spirit is not an anonymous force, whether created or uncreated. So it's not like Star Wars. It's not like this force, life force throughout all of creation that you can sort of become attuned to that there's something radically personal, relational here that we have to have ensconced in our mind. He is God, a unique mode of existence of divinity, a mysterious divine hypostasis. So the father and the son are locked in this embrace of love that is so radical, so complete and eternal that it it becomes the third person of the Trinity, that the, the word of God is eternal, eternal. Like when we think of ourselves, Mark, all of a sudden, all these ideas come to mind about who Mark is, but it's not going to, you not, your thought of yourself or somebody else's thought about you is not going to capture imperfection, everything that you are as a human being. But God's idea of himself, God's self-understanding is perfect and eternal. So God's word, the Benedict XVI said, you know, we often will logos word, but it's also meaning. Uh, So God's self identity God's understanding of who he is, is personified, perfect expression, eternal, as God himself is eternal. And similarly, with the love, and this is where it's hard for us to wrap our mind around it an eternal, perfect love that is expressed between Father and Son then again becomes hypostasis, uh, a, mis- a mysterious divine hypostasis, and often difficult for us to understand. I think. Uh, you know, Father, you know, there's something that we wrap our minds around, and even, you know, Son, certainly because of what has been revealed to us and the specific teachings of Christ, His life and experience. But this Holy Spirit, I think, is much more difficult for us to comprehend unless we are engaged in, in deep prayer. And so in the next paragraph, he says, O heavenly King, heavenly in this case refers to the ocean of divinity, as the Syriac tradition holds. The King is one who reigns. The Spirit of the Father rests in the Son. He is the kingdom of the Father and the anointing of the Son, as Saint Gregory of Nyssa says, among many others. He governs, meaning that he serves, the communion of the divine hypostasis, of whom he is the third. There is one the father and the other, the son, while the surpassing of any opposition is achieved in the third. The other is not absorbed back into the one, as seems so often to be the case in Eastern spiritualities and Gnostic beliefs. But there exists a thrice holy difference with a complete coherence. So that's a mouthful. But what he's saying, is, again, is that there is this perfect eternal expression of love, of meaning that exists within God, that they become distinct persons. And again, this is something that is very difficult for us to understand for the reason that I described here using Mark, that you know, his name does not describe everything about who he is, uh, but with God, that he can manifest himself Uh, in such a radical and complete way that Christ can say, the Father and I are one. And this is where everybody rips their garments, you know, blasphemy, heresy, and pick up stones to throw at him. Because he's saying that, you know, in seeing me, you see the the Father, that he's the perfect revelation, manifestation uh, of of God, the sacrament uh, of God himself in the world and that the church becomes the sacrament of Christ. We, make, we embody Christ through becoming Eucharistic beings in the world, and that we perpetuate Christ's ministry through the sacram- sacraments themselves. And so there, there should be this radical sense that we have of being wrapped up in the very life of the Holy Trinity and perpetuating what has been made manifest to us by God as he's drawn back the veil, as he's revealed himself to us throughout salvation more and more fully. I saw a hand go. Wait. Oh, oh, wait, wait. Okay. Was it something? Oh, it was, okay, go ahead. Uh, I, I was mm. trying to figure out what was meant here by, by uh, where he says, while the surpassing of any opposition is achieved in the third. That's Right, because I, sure think, that <laughs> well, I think, well, I think we tend to see ourselves as, uh, in this kind of way, as in opposition, so radically distinct from each other, which is true, but in, uh, a, but on, on some level, but in a way that diminishes our, our love and our understanding of the radical solidarity and union that exists between us that this is part of what the Incarnation and the Paschal mystery uh, brought about, was an overcoming of this uh, internal fragmentation that we experience between our sin, but the fragmentation that exists between us as human beings, the radical solidarity that we are are to have with each other, created in the image and likeness of God. That when we see the other We, you know, should not see them in opposition, all the things that irritate them, uh, about them that irritate us. And we tend, in our sin, to focus upon those things that distinguish ourselves from the other, and we're taught to do that. Start school early and earlier, because you've got to distinguish yourself from everybody else so that you can pursue these goals that the world sets before you that shape your identity. And so ego comes in to, to being for us uh, out of our sin, you know, because now we see our s- self, not in relation to other, but ourself as dis- distinguished from the other and see the other as a, as a threat. And so this is why we're in this constant cycle of seeking uh, a, a position of emotional supremacy over the other or physical or material in one way or another, rather than seeing the, the, per- the person who's across from me, across from the table from me. The only way that I'm allowed to look at them and engage them is to love them. That's the only way that I'm to see another person, not as somebody who's an obstacle to what I want because of what, what they are doing. That our, our my love for the other if it is to be Christ-like, is to always to see that which God has created them to be. And that this person is here for me in this moment to love, not for for any other reason, not for me to to make use of them, to satisfy my own ego, to build me up in any any particular way. You know, I think what people find most wounding, especially within the most intimate relationships, marriage, is where there is this intimate bond where the two become one and instead of the them seeing that oneness what they see begin to develop is this moving away from each other seeing each other not as one who allows me to love and give myself and love more fully and becomes one with whom i move toward god to offer myself to him more fully but becomes an, a, a Uh, an opposition to me to to experience the fullness of happiness and joy in this world. And so resentment begins to, to develop because in our skewed vision we expect that other person to be God for us and when they fail us we hate their guts for it, for not being able to fulfill our deepest needs. And so instead of loving them in the way that God has created us to love them, And together, loving God in the way that he has created us to love, we use them or abuse them or toss them aside. The deepest wounds, the deepest isolation that I've experienced in people's life is not those who have never married. It's in those who have married, but married without having any sense of the meaning of it now in light of Christ. And what has been revealed to us and uh, so they enter into this relationship driven by what is natural you know romance physical attraction sentimentality emotional attraction but is that what binds together a couple together to become one where they're no longer two but one or is there a third in that grouping that unites them. Is there a kind of Trinity there that must exist in order for them to love in the way that God desires them to love? And so there is none of that opposition that exists within the Holy Trinity is what Clement is telling us that there is such a perfection of love that, that, that exists there, that they are, all acting together and bound together in this same purpose cre- creating us redeeming us you know so anything that the son does the father and the spirit are part of that reality including the crucifixion and we, we lose sight of that He says it better than I do so that uh, when we move on here, I just wanna get through one, one little section here tonight <laughs> if we can. Uh, at the same time, this king comes to us to convey all that is heavenly, to comfort us and to bestow upon us the life of resurrection. This is why in John's gospel during the farewell discourse, Christ refers to him as paraclete. This is often translated as counselor But the better expression in English is comforter, the one who comforts by giving genuine strength. Jesus says the other comforter because they are inseparable. The tremendous consolation, the sharing of lives, and the flow of power inherent in Christ are poured out and manifested by the Spirit throughout history to the measure of every sort of quest, anguish, intuition that either tear it apart are exalted. So think for a moment of Christ saying, you know, that I've come to set fire, set the world on a blaze, and oh how I wish it was already burning. That he longs for the moment when he can let loose fully the love that he's been revealing in all of his actions, all the healings in, in his teachings, where he can let it loose in a complete fashion upon the cross, where he can pour himself out in love until he breathes his last upon the cross. And it is in this breathing out of his, of his last breath that the spirit pours out upon the church, church that all of our impurities are washed away, but we are also filled with this divine, with this divine love. And so, you know, what, what greater comfort is there in this knowledge that, uh, that what we experience in this life and the crosses that we bear are not the last word, nor are they an obstacle to our experiencing the fullness of life. In fact, it is just the opposite. That is often within, specifically in those struggles, in those trials, that we experience the the power and that comfort and that love in the the fullest measure. Where were we talking about this the other night? In one of the groups, uh, that St. Augustine has that quote, that uh, somebody help me out here. In my- Oh,
0: in my deepest wound, I saw your glory and
1: it dazzled me. In my deepest wound, I saw your glory and it dazzled me. So St. Augustine is saying that in his deepest wound of, of his life, that he could see his greatest poverty that in that, the thing that we often flee from or would want to flee from, that he saw the glory of, of God the most, and it dazzled him. And so you think about what comfort that is, that there is no suffering that we experience in life that has not already been embraced by God, that is already not permeated by the Spirit. And so we are never in isolation in anything that we experience and then throughout the course of our life, from the moment of our, our birth through death. You know, we often feel that we're in isolation when we find ourselves, when things in our life fail and fall apart, or we're misunderstood, we're criticized, we're, we're abandoned, tossed aside. You know, in those moments, we can think our life has no identity, no value, or I have no, no hope. You know, what, what does life hold for me? if we're able to see things with the the faith of an Augustine, that it's precisely in those moments when everything else is stripped away from us, that becomes so easily for us also the illusion that we cling to of, of, of identity that we seek to create around ourselves by the things that we have, by the degrees that we have, or the people that we surround ourselves. When all of that falls away and every illusion is destroyed, is when we have the most piercing vision and we see with perfect clarity the glory of God. Because the focus is taken off of the self, which is the illusion, and it is focused only on God. There's nothing there for us to hold on to anymore. And so we often will spend our life trying to prevent ourselves from having those experiences precisely where we are going to experience the action and the presence of God most fully. And, you know, Christians I think are often criticized or looked upon as a sadist or as hating the body, uh, you know, but in reality it it is rooted in this relational understanding that we have that Uh, of God. That God has entered into every aspect of our humanity, has embraced it in all of its fullness. That there's not been one thing that we experience as human beings that has not been redeemed by his embrace of our humanity and his uh, redemption of it by that, that perfect love and obedience on the cross. So nothing from which he is absent. And you know, so what is could be the greatest hope, the greatest source of comfort for the majority of people in our world who suffer terribly, we never speak to it. We never speak to them about, or rarely speak in these terms to them about what Christ means when he says, the other comforter is coming. One who will permeate, penetrate every aspect uh, of, of your life and allow everything to draw you more and more deeply into this relationship with God. What a source of comfort that would be for those who knew, know true poverty. And this is why we see in the beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are, are those who mourn, blessed are those who are persecuted. You know, it's all these circumstances where people are stripped of all these worldly things that they are called blessed You know, the blessed ones in Greek culture were the ones who were most like the gods. So those who had great health, those who had wealth, they had everything at their disposal, education. so they they were the blessed ones, which Christ turns all that on its head. He says, blessed aren't the the rich, blessed are the poor. And blessed are not those who are happy, but those who, who mourn. And so he turns reality on its head. And the more that we domesticate the gospel, the, m- the more that we lose, it's, it's not as though it's insignificant. It's not that we're just losing sight of something important or value, valuable. We're losing sight of our dignity, our destiny, our identity in God that it provides us with invincible hope, invincible love, Invincible faith, if we allow it to shape our hearts. So, this
2: just makes me think of like Saint Isaac in, in headset, be a herald of the goodness of God. And it just makes me think of the same thing because, like, we have the, like, how many people are really heralds of the Holy Spirit and activity here? You know what I mean? Like, how many people, that so much of it is, I mean, we're, if we're presumptuous, is this society or a church I think we're very presumptuous in the damnation of everyone who is themselves. I'm just saying that's, that's, that's the way I
1: it. No, no, it's absolutely right. And, and it's amazing you hear this as you're like right there. That's right. I'm like, how, how
2: much do we strive
1: to bring yeah. the comforting
2: grace of God? To? Yeah.
1: yeah, and especially in, when the scriptures tell us it's the will of God that all be saved. And for me, in my mind, if that's part of the will of God, if it's the will of God that all be saved, I place greater hope in that than my own judgment or opinion about the depth of other people's sin and their going to hell. Hell came into existence because of sin, but hell is not eternal. The love of God is eternal. And so where do we place our greatest hope? And where, where do we shape people's faith? Do we shape it more by fear? Or do we shape it by presenting them with this image of love that has, give, has held back nothing from us? And wants once, once only us to share in the fullness of that life.
2: And it's just amazing, it's like, because speaking for myself, I feel like I, I misunderstand so many things that, that you know, on, in the initial level at least, but like St. Isaac again in a
1: second which I read is
2: even went so far as to say Christ did not die on the cross to save you from sin. He died on the cross to reveal to you the extent of his love for you. Mm-hmm. And
1: like but like those aren't the things you hear now normally, you know what I mean? So like I just I, I don't think it's off topic yes. i sorry Well, w- 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 like, comfort of
2: God
1: loves so you, not, not, right. nothing matters,
2: do what do, you want, know, like not that, I just mean like, like, your love, you know, right. I don't the
1: world. Yeah, we don't need to be sort of dichotomous in our thinking there, yeah. either or, you know, that he did come, you know, to address the reality of our, our sin sure. and that we, are, you know, are free human beings who do have this responsibility to embrace what is offered to us. And so that we can't state that nobody's in hell But I think, you know, St. Isaac, who's only become available to us in the last 20 years in English, I think speaks of this love in the most perfect way of all the Desert Fathers. So if you have the opportunity to read his ascetical homilies, buy it, read it, read a paragraph a day, it's the most perfect expression of, I think of some of the things that we are talking about here, as well as the ascetic, the end, of the ascetic life, the goal of the ascetic life. Andrew. Uh, maybe I well, it comes into reality. Uh, I'm, I'm saying in the, with the same eternality of God, that God is eternal and his love is eternal. You know, hell is a negation and that arises out of the presence of sin, you know, the, you know, and we see it right in the garden, you read Genesis, you know, the, where, where we see where it emerges. And, uh, it's the same kind of temptation that's put to Christ in the desert, you know, towards their self identity, eat of the fruit of the tree and your eyes will be open and you will know good and evil for yourself and you will become gods. And the seduction there is that you will no longer need God, you no longer depend upon him, but the idea that you will know good and evil for yourself, that up to that point, what was known was good because God had created them good and all things good for them to to experience and live in they're being seduced by the evil one, uh, then draws them into this reality of disobedience that opens up then the experience, not of that love, that perfect love, but the opposite of it. So I'm not trying, you know, what I'm saying, I'm not trying to say that, I'm not falling into a pocket of stasis or saying, you know, that they're, they're, you know, everybody will be redeemed as well as Satan. So don't get me wrong, what I'm trying to say is that there was a, a t- there was a time where hell emerges. There was no time when God emerges, there never was when God was not. So, you know, we've you know, dealt with the heresy you know, in in church history long ago. And so um, I think I'm just applying that to to our our notion of hell because, uh, you know, I I think we place it on an equal footing with God himself and evil on equal footing with God himself. Yeah.
0: But it can't, right, but it can't possibly, because if it's the will of God that all be saved. I mean I know he gives us free will and that he, he can't just like force the actualization mm-hmm. of that desire mm-hmm. but ultimately the will of God is going
1: right. to right be- because if we lose sight of that then what does that, that hobbles us in the spiritual battle that when we fall you know the, the first thing that evil one does then becomes our accuser and tries to draw us into despondency and to doubt the mercy and the love of God and to prevent repentance, our turning back to God. And so, unless we have hope in this that all that God has done throughout salvation history and all that He did in and through Christ and through the cross is, and that Pentecost is something that's constantly taking place in our, our life at every single moment, then a person is going to fall into despair, just knowing our own poverty. But if we, if our focus is rather on the hope that we have because of what has been revealed to us, and you know, that God is willing to embrace our humanity in all of its fullness, the Incarnation, experience the Paschal Mystery, all of it is to manifest to us what is then to permeate our hearts through the gift of the Spirit that is the Comforter that speaks to us constantly of this love and mercy of God.
2: He adds one more thing, it's specificity there. He says that comfort as a strength, that strength, which is really very interesting, yeah. right? Because mm-hmm. we, we can interpret comfort as all kinds of right. different ways, but before you said that the Zechristic kingdom we should pour ourselves out as Christ did. Right. Right? But that takes strength to do that. Right. And we know conceptually that we're supposed to engage in expiatory suffering that we present
1: and we're to engage in spiritual warfare and so there and the spirit that is given to us is not a spirit of weakness but of strength. Uh, my very first homily which has been posted online <laughs> uh, I only say it because 30, 30 years ago I was ordained to the di- diaconate on uh, and my first homily was Pentecost and I, I spent like months working on this homily. I, 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 just can't do that anymore, (laughs) but uh, it was like six-page courier pitch, you know, (laughs) but I didn't, part of my preparing for the homily was looking at what uh, Clement is talking about here in terms of comforter, paraclete, counselor, but one of the meanings of paraclete in in the Greek and was common usage of the Greek was like a military commander encouraging his soldiers to enter into battle. Uh, sort of like Henry V's speech, as they're going into the, uh, in my homily, I drew this list of parallel, I know it was a stretch <laughs> and sort of pompous to use Shakespeare for your first homily, uh, but <laughs> it's a bold move, uh, sorry. But uh, you know, the, the St. Crispin's Day speech, you know, he's, he's trying to, you know, they're outnumbered and he's, he's trying to uh, embolden them to enter into this uh, battle fully. And the, the spirit does that for us as well. It, it encourages us to enter into the spiritual battle, that even though we seem to be overwhelmed and outnumbered, that we're struggling against principalities and powers, demons that know the, every working of and every habit that we have as human beings. They're experts at temptation because they've been engaging in this over time. There are demons that are tied to specific passions and uh, and so it's easy to fall into a kind of despair when we're falling into sin. And so unless we have this sense of the, the spirit of being comforter that leads us to repentance that draws us back into that life of God rather than into despair. Repentance is this constant turning toward God away from that sin. So comforted by the knowledge that, that God will draw us back to himself and allow us to step back into that battle once again, not to lose hope in the face of our own poverty, but place our hope where it should be, within the invincible love and mercy of God. Thank you. Okay. I mean,
0: it's such a, it's really, that stuck out to me too, that he specifies yeah. that by comforter, he means the one who gives, what is it, necessary strength or giving genuine strength, but like, you giving know, genuine strength, sort of like we were talking about with priests before and like loving the people they mm-hmm. serve and that not being like their own bound to be mm-hmm. adequate ability to love, but like to be comforted in that moment of, uh, would be to be given the strength to do it, to do it well, and not just be like rock back and forth and then like poor baby, you're just not able to love. Laugh. <laughs> <Okay. laughs> like it's not that kind of comfort. Right. It's like I'm gonna give you what you need. It's that kind of comfort. If it's like, if it's nursing, it's like battle nursing, where it's like I'll do everything you need to be taken care of so you can go back out into the into the battle.
1: Right. It's just like, yeah. So we've only made it through two little sections, but we're stopping here. We've got the momentum now to pick up tomorrow. Uh, So we'll move through it with greater uh, smoothness, I hope. Uh, But we have Compline scheduled for up in the church and little booklets for everybody uh, on this table here. So if you're able to stay, please do. And uh, who, who can lead everybody up to the church?